welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all God's children and all God's creation. And for the record, we should never, ever, ever take those higher qualities existing in any of God's children lightly. Let's not do that. Neither should we get the love and forgiveness of the living God twisted, because they are never signs of weakness. Now, it may be so in the negatively conditioned minds of some of mankind, those choosing to mentally reside in those darkened states of being. But the fact that we are all still present on the earth at this time, with all our imperfections, is proof enough of that very love and forgiveness shown to all humanity over and over and over again. And being loving and forgiving in our hearts towards others does not mean we must tolerate the ignorance evil, or hatefulness of others. Understand that. However, under the guidance of our own mighty I Am Presence, the presence of the living God within us, we are to love and forgive. Yet, we must also expend our loving energy wisely. Because our loving energy is our power. Therefore, for us to believe that being loving and forgiving in our hearts towards any of God's children are signs of weakness. It's for us to believe incorrectly and perilously. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life. And y'all be loved. The solar orb, like the nature of man, was divided by the ancient sages into three separate bodies. According to the mystics, there are three suns in each solar system, analogous to the three centers of life in each individual constitution. These are called three lights, the spiritual sun, the intellectual or solar sun, and the material sun, now symbolized in Freemasonry by three candles. The spiritual sun manifests the power of God the Father, The solar sun radiates the life of God the Son, and the material sun is the vehicle of manifestation for God the Holy Spirit. Man's nature was divided by the mystics into three distinct parts, spirit, soul, and body. His physical body was unfolded and vitalized by the material sun, his spiritual nature was illuminated by the spiritual sun, and his intellectual nature was redeemed by the true light of grace, the solar sun. The alignment of these three globes in the heavens was one explanation offered for the peculiar fact that the orbits of the planets are not circular but elliptical. The pagan priests always considered the solar system as a grand man and drew their analogy of these three centers of activity from the three main centers of life in the human body, the brain, the heart, and the generative system. 
The transfiguration of Jesus describes three tabernacles, the largest being in the center, the heart, and a smaller one on either side, the brain and the generative system. It is possible that the philosophical hypothesis of the existence of the three sons is based upon a peculiar natural phenomenon which has occurred many times in history. In the 51st year after Christ, three sons were seen at once in the sky and also in the 66th year. In the 69th year, two sons were seen together. According to William Lilly, between the years 1156 and 1648, 20 similar occurrences were recorded. Recognizing the sun as the supreme benefactor of the material world, Hermetists believed that there was a spiritual sun which ministered to the needs of the invisible and divine part of nature, human and universal. Anent this subject, the great Paracelsus wrote, There is an earthly sun, which is the cause of all heat, and all who are able to see may see the sun, and those who are blind and cannot see him may feel his heat. There is an eternal sun, which is the source of all wisdom, and those whose spiritual senses have awakened to life will see that sun and be conscious of his existence, but those who have not attained spiritual consciousness may yet feel his power by an inner faculty which is called intuition. Certain Rosicrucian scholars have given special appellations to these three phases of the sun, the spiritual sun they called Vulcan, the solar and intellectual sun, Christ and Lucifer respectively, and the material sun, the Jewish Demiurgus Jehovah. Lucifer here represents the intellectual mind without the illumination of the spiritual mind, therefore, it is the false light. The false light is finally overcome and redeemed by the true light of the soul, called the second logos or Christ. The secret processes by which the Luciferian intellect is transmuted into the Christly intellect constitute one of the great secrets of alchemy and are symbolized by the process of transmuting base metals into gold. In the rare treatise The Secret Symbols of the Rosicrucians, Franz Hartmann defines the sun alchemically as, the symbol of wisdom, the center of power or heart of things. The sun is a center of energy and a storehouse of power. Each living being contains within itself a center of life, which may grow to be a sun. In the heart of the regenerated, the divine power, stimulated by the light of the logos, grows into a sun which illuminates his mind. In a note, the same author amplifies his description by adding, the terrestrial sun is the image or reflection of the invisible celestial sun, the former is in the realm of spirit what the latter is in the realm of matter, but the latter receives its power from the former. In the majority of cases, the religions of antiquity agree that the material visible sun was a reflector rather than a source of power. The sun was sometimes represented as a shield carried on the arm of the sun god, as for example, Frey, the Scandinavian solar deity. This sun reflected the light of the invisible spiritual sun, which was the true source of life, light, and truth. The physical nature of the universe is receptive, it is a realm of effects. The invisible causes of these effects belong to the spiritual world. Hence, the spiritual world is the sphere of causation, the material world is the sphere of effects, while the intellectual, or soul, world is the sphere of mediation. Thus Christ, the personified higher intellect and soul nature, is called the mediator who, by virtue of his position and power, says, No man cometh to the Father, but by me. What the sun is to the solar system, the spirit is to the bodies of man, for his nature's organs and functions are as planets surrounding the central life, or sun, and living upon its emanations. The solar power in man is divided into three parts, which are termed the threefold human spirit of man, all three of these spiritual natures are said to be radiant and transcendent, united, they form the divinity in man. 
man's threefold lower nature, consisting of his physical organism, his emotional nature, and his mental faculties, reflects the light of his threefold divinity and bears witness of it in the physical world. Man's three bodies are symbolized by an upright triangle, his threefold spiritual nature by an inverted triangle. These two triangles, when united in the form of a six-pointed star, were called by the Jews the Star of David, the Signet of Solomon, and are more commonly known today as the Star of Zion. These triangles symbolize the spiritual and material universes linked together in the constitution of the human creature, who partakes of both nature and divinity. Man's animal nature partakes of the earth, his divine nature of the heavens, his human nature of the mediator. The Rosicrucians and the Illuminati, describing the angels, archangels, and other celestial creatures, declared that they resembled small suns, being centers of radiant energy surrounded by streamers of relic force. From these outpouring streamers of force is derived the popular belief that angels have wings. These wings are corona-like fans of light, by means of which the celestial creatures propel themselves through the subtle essences of the superphysical worlds. True mystics are unanimous in their denial of the theory that the angels and archangels are human in form, as so often pictured. A human figure would be utterly useless in the ethereal substances through which they manifest. Science has long debated the probability of the other planets being inhabited. Objections to the idea are based upon the argument that creatures with human organisms could not possibly exist in the environments of Mars, Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune. This argument fails to take into account nature's universal law of adjustment to environment. The ancients asserted that life originated from the sun, and that everything when bathed in the light of the solar orb was capable of absorbing the solar life elements and later radiating them as flora and fauna. One philosophical concept regarded the sun as a parent and the planets as embryos still connected to the solar body by means of ethereal umbilical cords, which served as channels to convey life and nourishment to the planets. Some secret orders have taught that the sun was inhabited by a race of creatures with bodies composed of a radiant, spiritual ether not unlike in its constituency, the actual glowing ball of the sun itself. The solar heat had no harmful effect upon them, because their organisms were sufficiently refined and sensitized to harmonize with the sun's tremendous vibratory rate. These creatures resemble miniature suns, being a little larger than a dinner plate in size, although some of the more powerful are considerably larger. Their color is the golden white light of the sun and from them emanate four streamers of real. These streamers are often of great length and are in constant motion. A peculiar palpitation is to be noted throughout the structure of the globe and is communicated in the form of ripples to the emanating streamers. The greatest and most luminous of these spheres is the Archangel Michael, and the entire order of solar life, which resemble him and dwell upon the sun, are called by modern Christians the Archangels, or the Spirits of the Light. The Secret Teachings of All Ages, by Manly P. Hall, 1928 Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, Chapter 6 The curtains of yesterday drop down, the curtains of tomorrow roll up, but yesterday and tomorrow both are. Sartor Resartus, Natural Supernaturalism May we not then be permitted to examine the authenticity of the Bible, which since the second century has been put forth as the criterion of scientific truth. To maintain itself in a position so exalted, it must challenge human criticism. 
Conflict between religion and science. One kiss of Nara upon the lips of Nari and all nature wakes. Venus Nadi, a Hindu poet. We must not forget that the Christian church owes its present canonical gospels, and hence its whole religious dogmatism, to the Sortis Sanctorum. Unable to agree as to which were the most divinely inspired of the numerous gospels extant in its time, the mysterious council of Nicaea concluded to leave the decision of the puzzling question to miraculous intervention. This Nicaean council may well be called mysterious. There was a mystery, first, in the mystical number of its 318 bishops, on which Barnabas, 8, 11, 12, 13, lays such a stress, added to this, there is no agreement among the ancient writers as to the time and place of its assembly, nor even as to the bishop who presided. Notwithstanding the grandiloquent eulogium of Constantine, Sabinus, the bishop of Heraclea, affirms that except Constantine, the emperor, and Eusebius Pamphilus, these bishops were a set of illiterate, simple creatures, that understood nothing, which is equivalent to saying that they were a set of fools. Such was apparently the opinion entertained of them by Pappus, who tells us of the bit of magic resorted to, to decide which were the true Gospels. In his Synodicon to that council Pappus says, having promiscuously put all the books that were referred to the council for determination under a communion table in a church, they, the bishops, besought the Lord that the inspired writings might get upon the table, while the spurious ones remained underneath, and it happened accordingly. But we are not told who kept the keys of the council chamber overnight. On the authority of ecclesiastical eyewitnesses, therefore, we are at liberty to say that the Christian world owes its word of God to a method of divination, for resorting to which the church subsequently condemned unfortunate victims as conjurers, enchanters, magicians, witches, and vaticinators, and burnt them by thousands. In treating of this truly divine phenomenon of the self-sorting manuscripts, the fathers of the church say that God himself presides over the sorties. As we have shown elsewhere, Augustine confesses that he himself used this sort of divination. But opinions, like revealed religions, are liable to change. That which for nearly 1500 years was imposed on Christendom as a book, of which every word was written under the direct supervision of the Holy Ghost, of which not a syllable, nor a comma, could be changed without sacrilege, is now being retranslated, revised, corrected, and clipped of whole verses, in some cases of entire chapters. And yet, as soon as the new edition is out, its doctors would have us accepted as a new revelation of the 19th century, with the alternative of being held as an infidel. Thus, we see that, no more within than without its precincts, is the infallible church to be trusted more than would be reasonably convenient. H.P. Blavatsky The forefathers of our modern divines found authority for the sorties in the verse where it said, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord, and now, their direct heirs hold that the whole disposing thereof is of the devil. Perhaps, they are unconsciously beginning to endorse the doctrine of the Syrian Burdanes, that the actions of God, as well as of man, are subject to necessity? It was no doubt, also, according to strict necessity that the Neoplatonists were so summarily dealt with by the Christian mob. In those days, the doctrines of the Hindu naturalists and antediluvian Pyrrhonists were forgotten, if they ever had been known at all, to any but a few philosophers, and Mr. Darwin, with his modern discoveries, had not even been mentioned in the prophesies. In this case the law of the survival of the fittest was reversed, the Neoplatonists were doomed to destruction from the day when they openly sided with Aristotle. 
At the beginning of the 4th century crowds began gathering at the door of the academy where the learned and unfortunate Hypatia expounded the doctrines of the divine Plato and Plotinus, and thereby impeded the progress of Christian proselytism. She too successfully dispelled the mist hanging over the religious mysteries invented by the fathers, not to be considered dangerous. This alone would have been sufficient to imperil both herself and her followers. It was precisely the teachings of this pagan philosopher, which had been so freely borrowed by the Christians to give a finishing touch to their otherwise incomprehensible scheme, that had seduced so many into joining the new religion, and now the platonic light began shining so inconveniently bright upon the pious patchwork, as to allow everyone to see whence the revealed doctrines were derived. But there was still a greater peril. Hypatia had studied under Plutarch, the head of the Athenian school, and had learned all the secrets of theurgy. While she lived to instruct the multitude, no divine miracles could be produced before one who could divulge the natural causes by which they took place. Her doom was sealed by Cyril, whose eloquence she eclipsed, and whose authority, built on degraded superstitions, had to yield before hers, which was erected on the rock of immutable natural law. It is more than curious that Cave, the author of the Lives of the Fathers, should find it incredible that Cyril sanctioned her murder on account of his general character. A saint who would sell the gold and silver vessels of his church, and then, after spending the money, lie at his trial, as he did, may well be suspected of anything. Besides, in this case, the church had to fight for her life, to say nothing of her future supremacy. Alone, the hated and erudite pagan scholars, and the no less learned Gnostics, held in their doctrines the hitherto concealed wires of all these theological marionettes. Once the curtain should be lifted, the connection between the old pagan and the new Christian religions would be exposed, and then, what would have become of the mysteries into which it is sin and blasphemy to pry? With such a coincidence of the astronomical allegories of various pagan myths with the dates adopted by Christianity for the Nativity, Crucifixion and Resurrection, and such an identity of rites and ceremonies, what would have been the fate of the new religion, had not the Church, under the pretext of serving Christ, got rid of the two well-informed philosophers? To guess what, if the coup d'etat had then failed, might have been the prevailing religion in our own century would indeed, be a hard task. But in all probability, the state of things which made of the Middle Ages a period of intellectual darkness, which degraded the nations of the Occident, and lowered the Europeans of those days almost to the level of a Papuan savage, could not have occurred. H.P. Blavatsky There is no resistance to our use of the sacred fire. There is no opposition to the legions of the angels of fiery Christ blue lightning and victory, as mighty victory told you last night. There is no opposition to us. We offer these things, but if mankind covers them over with the discord and the substance of destruction, that doesn't mean that the discord has entered into that thing any more than the clouds can enter into the sun presence. If sometimes the sunlight is shut off because there are clouds underneath it, the clouds don't enter into the sun. Mankind's evil cannot enter into the sacred fire control of the angels of the sacred fire, whose almighty love and power without limit, of electronic force from the great central sun, can be concentrated into any intensity whatsoever to dissolve and consume anything that is of discord. So beloved ones, if you care to have these legions as your friends, they are friends of mighty power. 
And if you care to associate with them, you will be surprised at the blessings that will fill you in your world, and you will begin to feel that you do have a power of mastery over destructive conditions, or in the fulfillment of the divine plan that prevents delay and takes you forward victorious everywhere. And you have to have their assistance at the moment of the ascension, and before the ascension. You can't have the ascension except by the assistance of the angels of the sacred fire, whose love is indestructible purity and power without limit for eternity. Every ascension that ever takes place comes into our octave in the midst of limitless legions of the angels of the sacred fire whose love surrounds that one ascending, and draws it by the magnetic power of that love into the ascended master's octave of perfection for eternity. So, this is your eternal destiny. These are friends of yours for eternity, and this is the master power that you can have as the assistance you need while yet unascended. But you must remember them. You must see them. You must pour love to them. You must call them into outer physical conditions. And practice calling their sacred fire love's indestructible purity at every condition that exists in order to consume what is wrong, draw forth, and produce what is the fulfillment of the divine plan, and protects it until you are completely ascended. Now this can be drawn into outer action to help your nation just as well as you individually, or in business associations, or in any condition of the outer world. There isn't a place where it can't be called into existence, and there is no such thing as failure, because the sacred fire love which the angelic hosts from the great central sun draw into this world is immortal mastery, and as free as the air you breathe. Beloved Archangel Michael So blessed ones, sometimes when you think of me, when I've been portrayed with a sword of blue flame, that's no figment of anyone's imagination. We do use the sword that draws forth from the great central sun many times, a concentration of electronic force of indestructible purity. But it is love's purity, and as it comes, it consumes everything unlike its own love. And that is the part of wisdom. That is love, wisdom, and power in perfect balance. That is the only divine justice there is in creation. You can have this power to use without any limit whatsoever. It is free. You can have it without money, without price. It only takes your love to the angelic host, your love to your mighty I am presence first, your love to the ascended host, to ask for the limitless, unconquerable legions of the angels of the sacred fire to come in and control conditions that you physically cannot control. So, we give you a scepter of power, if you care to cooperate with these beings by whom systems of worlds are created, and sustained, and systems of suns created and sustained for eternity throughout infinite space. This is what the love of God's heart contains. That love, the beloved mighty I am presence in the great central sun, gives of itself without limit, and its individual heart flame is in the mighty I am presence and higher mental body of every life stream in existence. And it, in turn, projects that heart flame down into the physical flesh body, or you wouldn't live. The seven mighty Elohim give their hearts flame into your forehead. And the legions of the angels of the sacred fires love ever stand above you and around you, holding protection many times when you don't even know there is danger. So, I think the hour has arrived when there must come conscious recognition of these beings, and a conscious call to them to give you more protection and more power to hold your victory here, for the purity and freedom of your nation, and for peace to the earth. And if you will call these into outer physical conditions, your joy will know no bounds, and your victory will be certain everywhere you call it into action. Beloved Archangel Michael,
Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, Chapter 6.